Please stand for the reading of God's word. Even those of you at home, we invite you to stand. This is a great opportunity to remember that you're not just a passive observer, but you can be an active participant today in worship. Our scripture focus today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn, and there was dirt on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road watching, because he was anxious about the ark of God. And when the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked, why this commotion? And the man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. Well, what happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines, and also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate, and since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news about the capture of God's Ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband— she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the woman taking care of her said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, Hallows Church and friends and guests who are tuning in and worshiping with us today. We're so glad that you are spending this time with us. If you have your Bibles, no matter where you are located in our city or, or elsewhere, grab those Bibles and turn them open to 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, I'm especially uh, glad and appreciative to be here with you today. A few weeks ago, uh, both Kim and I uh, received a slight electric shock when we touched the exterior surface of our dryer. And now, that wasn't the first time something like that happened uh, to me. I remember years ago trying to um, assemble or put a new dryer into one of our uh, previous apartments, and as I was putting the dryer in and plugging it in, the uh, a black mark just shot up the side of the wall. And I learned in that moment that grounding and wiring are both important when you're dealing with appliances like that. And, and I also learned that, you know, it's probably a, put a, a good idea to turn off the breakers before you start messing around with that sort of thing. Uh, well, when Kim and I started to feel this shock uh, coming out of uh, just at the touch of the dryer, we, we knew something was wrong. And so fortunately, we have a friend, a leader in our church named Matt Kim, who one day after one of our gatherings, he came over to the house to examine the problem and to check things out. And, and what he discovered was that when our dryer was being uh, put into the house that we are living in now, they, when the wire, the cord was attached to the back, uh, 
And before it was being plugged into the wall, that the wires of that cord got, got uh, crossed. And because it wasn't, the wires were crossed, it caused the electrical current not to flow properly through the machine. And over time, that situation began to deteriorate and the current began to spread through the actual machine itself and had our friend Matt not come over and examined what had gone wrong and corrected uh, the wiring of that dryer. Things could have got really, really bad for us. And so in that moment, uh, Matt fixed the wiring of the cord and he instantly became our hero. And we were tempted to set up a little shrine in our garage worshiping Matt for doing that before us and preventing uh, something really bad from going down in our lives. Now, I share that with you this morning because to be human means to be hardwired for the glory of God. That you and I were created in such a way where we are to see all the beauties and the wonders of the creation surrounding us, ranging from the stars in the sky to sex in marriage, from ambition that serves the flourishing of humanity to art that promotes what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, that we are intended to see all the beauties and the wonders of, of creation. We are to see them as signposts drawing our gaze Godward that we might behold the glory, the importance, the substance, the significance, the beauty of our God. But you know something's not right within us, that somewhere along the line, the, the wiring of the human heart got crossed, so that now we have sinned and fallen short of his glory. We are not beholding the glory of God as we were designed to do because our wires are crossed. So that now you and I choose on a regular basis to worship and to serve aspects of creation rather than the creator. We now spend most of our time and most of our days looking at the signposts of creation rather than looking through the signposts of creation so that we might behold the glory of the one who created us. Behold the glory of the one who sent Jesus ultimately to redeem us. For you know that the goal of the gospel is to rewire the human heart. The goal of the gospel is to bring us back to where we belong so that we might behold afresh and anew the glory for which we were created. You know, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, this is why Jesus is my hero. This is why I worship Jesus, because he has gone to work in my life to rewire my heart so that I might be who God originally created me to be and do the things that God designed me to do so that I might enjoy creation without being enslaved to creation, that I might follow the signs of creation to see the glory of God and not waste my days and waste my life staring at those signs. Now, I share this with you this morning because here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we are finding a story that serves as a tragic warning, a tragic warning of what happens when our hardwiring for the glory of God goes unchecked, when the wires of the human heart remain crossed and they're not corrected, they're not changed, they're not remedied by the one who can remedy, remedy them in Jesus. And so we read this story, and perhaps you were hearing Kim read it a moment ago, and, and you're like, what in the world is this about? 
There's nothing good that happens in this story. Everything in this chapter is bad. It's all moving in a downward direction. But we believe that all of God's word is profitable for us. All of God's word speaks truth to us. And so we want to ask as we step into the story this morning for for God's grace to be with us and for his Holy Spirit to instruct us so that we might hear what God wants us to hear from a story, even a story as tragic as this one. Let me pray one more time for us and then we will We will look at it. Heavenly Father, as our Bibles are open, would you open up our hearts? As our ears are are attentive in this moment, would you cause them to hear your voice and to hear your words so that we might find you doing the work that only you can do in our lives? We recognize that the wiring of our heart is often crossed. I pray, Lord, that you would correct that, that you would remedy that, and that you would keep that. Keep it, Father, so that our hearts may... Behold your glory in the person and the work of Jesus ultimately. God, reconnect us with the glory for which we were created in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here in 1 Samuel 4, it's a story. It's a tragic story. It's a a sad story that opens up uh, at a point in time. We're not entirely sure kind of when these events happened after the closing of chapter 3. We're just kind of dropped onto a scene where this fight's about to break out between the people of Israel and their number one enemy in the book of of 1 Samuel, the the Philistine armies. And we're told that the Israelites were camped at a place called Ebenezer while the Philistines were hanging out at a place called Aphek and a couple of miles apart together. They were about 20 miles west of Shiloh, a place that has been prominent in our study of 1 Samuel up to this point up to this point, and you have these two armies at their camps, and they're getting ready to battle. And it won't be the first time that the Israelites will fight the Philistines. They will fight many times as we journey through first and even second Samuel. And, and this isn't the kickstart of their rivalry. That, that rivalry began many years before. That We're told in the book of Judges chapter 13 that the people of Israel served the Philistines for 40 years because the Philistines had conquered them and beat them in battle. And so when we're stepping into the beginning of this chapter and we see this fight that's about to break out, understand that it's more than a fight for survival. The battle between these two armies will prove to be the fight for glory. Because in antiquity, a people or a nation's glory was relative to how they compared and contrasted with the nations and the peoples surrounding them. And so if you wanted to establish yourself as a significant people in the world, if you wanted to be a substantial people in the world, you had to conquer. You had to subdue your enemies. And so this fight between the Israelites and the Philistines was more than a fight for survival. It was a fight for glory. How these peoples sought to establish themselves in the world. And I believe this instinct, this fight for glory, it continues to play itself out in the cross-wiring of the human heart today. This is what accounts for the perpetual uh, conflict of tribalism that exists in our culture and society today, where different groups and different peoples and different cultures and subcultures and groups and big groups and small groups, and they're competing against one another. They are rivals to one another as they compete and fight for this thing called glory. 
for this thing called significance, for this thing called substance. And so this fight for glory is happening here between the people of Israel and the Philistine army. And at the beginning of the chapter, if you look back up to verse 1 of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 4, you'll find that it doesn't go very well for the people of Israel. In fact, when they went out to fight the Philistines, they lost. And it it says at the end of verse 3 that they lost 4,000 soldiers. 4,000 soldiers died after fighting the Israelites. And so you get into verse 4, and you kind of have this moment after the battle where the two armies have returned to their camps, and they're kind of having their post-game debrief, and they're evaluating what went down and why things unfolded the way that they did. And, and in verse 3, beginning of or at the first part of verse 3, we're told that the elders of Israel asked the question, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Now, if the elders proved to be wiser than they are in this particular book. They're not a very wise eldership. They're not wise leaders. But if they had been wiser, if they had been more aware of God's word and of God's ways, they would have already known the answer to that question. They would have known that the Lord had promised to establish his people in the world, that he would account for their significance, their substance, their glory. But his people needed to live by faith in who he is and what he was about. But Israel, including and especially their leaders, failed to do that. And because they failed to honor God as God, to to uphold their aspect of their relationship with God, the Lord handed them over to their enemies. This wasn't the first time the Lord did this to Israel, and it wouldn't be the last when the Lord operated this way. And so the elders should have known the answer to that question, why did the Lord defeat us today? But they, they seem to be obtuse. They seem to be oblivious. You know, one of the things I've been meditating upon as I think about this instance, and I think about this question that the elders are asking, and, and I think about ways in which you and I might experience disappointment with the Lord and We might want something to happen that doesn't happen, or we may dream of something fulfilling that's not fulfilled, and and we may kind of come to the post-game analysis of why things turned out sour or why things went south, and and we may find ourselves frustrated with the Lord at times, asking very similar questions. And one of the things that has cut my heart this week is the realization that the Lord will allow you and the Lord will allow me to be disappointed with him. He will allow us to be disappointed with him if it awakens us to the reality of who he is and what he is about. There are times in our lives when our Heavenly Father disciplines us. And he disciplines us because we have been disobedient or because there are things in our lives, there are wires in our heart that have gotten crossed, that have gotten twisted, and his discipline is designed to shake that out so that we might behold his glory afresh and anew. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 is getting after when it just talks about how the how, how our heavenly father disciplines us so that we might share in his holiness so that we might mature, so that we might grow. And any child who's been disciplined by a benevolent, loving 
kind and caring parent, they know that in the moment of being disciplined, uh, there's feelings of disappointment with mom and there's feelings of disappointment with dad. But mom and dad know that this discipline that they are, that they are bringing out and carrying out in their kids' lives, that it's designed to help them. It's not ultimately designed to hurt them. And that in time, that kid's initial disappointment will dissolve. And that kid will come to appreciate who their mom and who their dad is in their lives. And this is the same for us. That at times the Lord may discipline us. And his discipline may cause us to grow disappointed with him. But in time, we will come to find as our, the wiring of our heart is being remedied. And we are beholding afresh his glory. And we are being tuned in to the type of God he actually is. Suddenly we start celebrating his glory and appreciating his glory and we live humbly before his glory. One of the realities of who God is and what God is about is that he is far more concerned with yours and my holiness than with our immediate happiness. He's far more concerned with making us holy people who honor him as God, who glorify him as God, who find all of their needs and desires met in God. He's far more concerned with that happening than just coddling us with immediate and fleeting experiences of earthly happiness. And so in this moment, the Lord caused his people to be disappointed. He disciplined them, and the elders don't know how to think rightly about that. And so they're figuring out, okay, well, if we're going to fight the Philistines again, if we're going to reclaim the glory that we just lost to our enemies, how are we going to do that? And they come up with a solution. That's not really a solution. It says in verse 3b, they decide, okay, if we're going to go out and reclaim the glory we've lost, let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. And this is the first reference to the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God, an object that shows up 12 times in this story. And anytime you're reading through a narrative in the Old Testament, you want to pay attention to repetition. Because when repetition occurs in a Hebrew narrative, that tends to be the key that unlocks that narrative's meaning. And so the meaning of this story revolves around the ark of the Lord, the ark of God. Now, what is this thing? Well, it's very, very important. Going based on some of the dimensions and the way it's described in in the scriptures, we have illustrations of it as artists have kind of envisioned what it would look like. And I just want to show you one today. You can catch a glimpse of the this image of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what the Ark of the Covenant did is that it basically served as a visible representation of the relationship Israel was to share with this invisible God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't an image of God, for the Lord commanded, you shall not carve any images made of stone or gold or anything of me. This covenant, this Ark of the Covenant wasn't an image of God, but it represented the relationship shared between God and his people. And, and in that, you find glory. In that, you find this Ark of the Covenant serving as a, 
as an incredible signpost drawing everyone's gaze Godward to come to understand what relating to God is all about. And it basically spoke to three things. The glory of God as kind of uh, echoing in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant amongst the people of Israel spoke to three things. One, it spoke to God's rule. That God's people are to live under his rule as this is conveyed through the cherubim that are bowing before the mercy seat, even these fiery angelic beings, these powerful heavenly creatures are bowing before the Lord, understanding that he is holy and that he is sovereign. So the covenant reminded Israel that God rules, that he's in charge. But then there was another dynamic. When you looked into the covenant, you found a few things that speaks of the fact that God reveals So not only does God rule, but God reveals. And so inside the covenant, we're told earlier in the Old Testament that the tablets of stone that carried the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, those tablets were placed in the ark. We're also told that a sampling of the manna from heaven that the Lord poured out upon his people to feed them every day as they wandered through the wilderness in the book of Exodus, that manna was placed in the covenant, in the ark as well. And then there was also a rod or a staff there that belonged to the priest Aaron. And and all of those objects speaks to the fact that God reveals himself, that God speaks, that God's just not ruling over creation and waiting for people to kind of find their way to him and discover him on their own. No, God, the God who rules is the God who reveals. He's the God who discloses himself so that people like you and me can actually know who he is and what he's about. But then there was one other dynamic to this, to the Ark of the Covenant, because not only to speak to God's rule and God's, the fact that God reveals, but it also speaks to the fact that God reconciles with sinners. That God reconciles with sinners, because on that mercy seat, on an annual basis, like clockwork, every year, the great high priest would enter into the tabernacle and later the temple, and they would walk into the Holy of Holies where the ark was placed and positioned, and they would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. And that blood was drawn from the the, the sacrificial lamb that was offered up for God's people, and all of it, this giant object lesson that says God reconciles sinners. And it all was a giant object lesson teaching and training God's people to, so they would know how to interpret the Messiah's life and his death and his resurrection. For when Jesus' blood was shed, he proved to be the Lamb of God whose blood was slain for our forgiveness. He is the one whose work reconciles us with this sovereign God who speaks to us and who now in Christ forgives us of our sins. The glory of God is conveyed through the Ark of the Covenant, this, this Ark is signaling and pointing people in that direction. And so the Israelite elders in this story, they think that, well, we have this incredible sign of the glory of God. We have this, this signpost that speaks of God's rule, and it speaks of his relationship, and it speaks of the fact that he reveals himself to us, and he reconciles us to himself. It speaks in all these ways. So if we just take this Ark and we bring it out onto the battlefield, then that's going to guarantee us victory. And so without taking any time to kind of examine why, 
the Lord really did hand them over to the Philistines, that he did that because Israel's spiritual leaders were wicked men, Hophni and Phinehas, and a neglectant guy named Eli. And all of these problems surrounded the worship of God's people at the time. They didn't take any moment to think that through, to pray that through, to humble themselves before the Lord. No, they said, well, we've got the ark. Let's throw it out there. And if we throw it out there, we are going to prevail over our enemies. And so essentially what the elders led the people of Israel to do in this moment, they led them to get religious without getting repentant. And when you or I posture ourselves as religious people without practicing repentance, that proves deadly. The posture of religion without the practice of repentance is a terrible way to try and relate to God. It's what Paul would warn warn Timothy of in 2 Timothy when he tells them, look, you don't want to have a form of godliness while denying its power. This was the people of Israel in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. They had a form of godliness. We own the ark. Let's get it out there. But they denied its power because they did not relate to God on the basis of which to which God required. And repentance wasn't a part of this posture of religious zeal. And, and it's going to prove it's going to go terribly bad for the people of Israel. See, there's a difference in having the forms of faith. A person may have all the forms of faith in the world and yet not necessarily connect with the favor of God. It doesn't really matter how many Bibles you have in your house. It doesn't really matter if you bat a thousand in attending worship gatherings like this over the course of a year. It doesn't really matter if you post a a Jesus fish on the back of your car. The forms of faith mean nothing. The substance of faith is what matters. Are we repenting? Are we believing? Are we trusting? Are we relating to God in the ways that God calls us to relate to him? The people of Israel had the form of faith, the Ark of the Covenant, but they denied its power. They got religious without being repentant, and things go really, really bad for them. And so while they're kind of scheming this plan and and wanting to parade the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out onto the battlefield. And with that would come Hophni and Phinehas, two wicked men that God did not favor. People that God had already said he was against and not for. So it didn't really matter if they were on the side of the Ark. They still weren't on God's side. But everyone got excited by the plan. And we're told at the end of verse 5 that when the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, when it was brought from Shiloh to Ebenezer and it was getting ready to brought to the battlefield, everybody went crazy. Everyone shouted so loudly. They had so much confidence in this act, in this deed, that the ground began to shake. And we're told in verse 6 that the Philistines heard this. And so after that first battle, the Philistines went to their camp and they began to regroup. And when they learned that the ark of the covenant of the Lord had been brought to Ebenezer and was going to was going to parade in the next battle, they they got a little intimidated because they knew something about what God did for Israel in the wilderness, but they didn't know everything. And they get a lot of the details. uh, They are are messed up in their minds. They don't understand what's really, what really went down and who the Lord is and what the Lord did, but they have some idea. And so they get afraid. 
And so they pump themselves up, and you get down to verse 9, and they have to kind of rally themselves. They have this pep rally. It's like, kind of like, it remind me of those overzealous weightlifters in the gym who they get ready to, to press something incredibly heavy, and their partner gets in front of them, just slaps them in the face, and gets them jacked up and energized, ready to go. And This is what the Philistines are doing. They're trying to rally themselves up for this next battle. And so you have this statement at the end of verse 5. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 9, where they say to themselves, show some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. And then in verse 10, we're told that's what they did. They went out and they fought against the Israelites again, and this is what happened. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Israel was defeated again, and each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. The 30,000 of the the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God, this signpost pointing to the glory of God amongst the people, the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That detail is important as that's a fulfillment of what God said was going to happen in chapters 2 and Again, in chapter 3, when he said he would judge Eli and his household, and here's where God's word is proving true. Because God's word always holds true, whether that's a word of judgment or a word of salvation. God's word always holds true. And so things end badly for the people of Israel that day. 30,000 soldiers died. And then that moves, you slip into the next scene of verse 12, and you begin to find in the portion of this passage that was read for us a moment ago, this, a type of fall from glory, a type of fall from glory that happened that same day. We're told in verse 12 that a messenger ran to Shiloh to report about what just happened. He went to tell everyone about what just went down and We're told in verse 12 that it was a Benjaminite man ran from the battlefield and came to Shiloh. Now, there are some Jewish traditions, some Hebrew traditions that suggest that this man may have been a young Saul because Saul would be the next Benjaminite or the first Benjaminite we are introduced to by name in the narrative. And so some traditions suggest, we don't know for sure, that this may have been a younger Saul. But whoever it is, he shows up and he tells everyone about what just happened. And we're told that Eli, the father of Hophni and Phinehas, the one who was to oversee the worship of God's people in this day, who was not doing a good job, he was waiting for a word to reach him about what happened. He was concerned about the Ark of the Covenant. He was concerned about the glory of Israel. And when he heard the outcry of the people, he began to ask the question, why this commotion? And the man quickly came and told Eli, We're told in verse 15 that at that time, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes didn't move because he couldn't see. His vision had finally failed him. And then the man reported, verse 17, the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. And the ark of God has been captured. Now notice verse 18. 
When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Now we know that time made Eli old. He had served as a judge of Israel for 40 years. He had been in his position of leadership for a long time. It was in his 90s at the moment of hearing this word. We know that time made him old, but my question this morning is what made him heavy? What made him fat? Now I want you to hold that question and look back at chapter 2, verse 29, where we're told about the type of life Eli was leaning into. Verse 29 of chapter 2. It says, why then do all of you, this is the Lord speaking to Eli, and this is what he accuses, accuses him of. Why then do all of you despise my sacrifices and offerings that I require at the place of worship? You have honored your sons more than me by making yourselves, here it is, fat. Making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people. And so Eli had spent a long time eating the best portions of the sacrifices and the offerings that were being brought to the Lord by the Lord's people for decades. And over time, that made him heavy. Over time, eating that fat made him fat. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because when you look at the word heavy in chapter 4, that word hair heavy is translated from a Hebrew word that carries the same root for the word glory. Glory means heavy. And you take that further and you find euphemisms where heaviness speaks to a person's significance. It speaks to a person's substance. We even have sayings today. The coach enters the locker room and started throwing his weight around which meaning he started establishing himself as the most significant person in the room that everybody should listen to. And so what you're finding in this fall from glory is a picture of how the Lord's judgment ordinarily plays itself out in our lives. Ordinarily, the Lord's judgment looks like him giving us what we want. And handing us over to things that will ultimately lead to our demise, that will cause us to fall and break our neck, so to speak. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, when he's talking about the Lord's judgment. Listen to what he says. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God, referring to all of humanity at this, at this point, Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Here it is again. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, here it is a third time, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they would, so that they would not do what is right. Do, do you hear it? The way God's judgment ordinarily plays itself out in our lives is when he delivers us over to things that we desire apart from him. 
Meaning that if you want life without God, you can have it. But if that's the kind of life you want, you're not going to like how it ends. If you exchange the glory for which you were created, the glory of God, for the lesser glories of creation, you can have it. But in the end, you're not going to like it. When we take the signposts of creation and we look at them rather than through them, it will not go well for us in the end. When we exchange the glory of the creator for the glories of creation, we're going to fall. And our stories are going to end tragically the way Eli's story ends tragically in this this narrative. See, it's possible for signposts to become tombstones. It's possible for signposts to become tombstones bearing witness to lives that never looked beyond them. I'll give you an example of how this can play out when we think about some of the signposts in our lives. You take, for example, this desire, this longing that every human being has to be seen. That every human being wants to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be considered significant or substantial. This longing to be seen and known, it it translates into society and it translates into culture as a desire to be famous, usually. And so this desire to be seen and to be known, it devolves into this desire to be famous so that we're uberly concerned with being known and seen and recognized by other human beings and we look at that sign rather than thinking through, okay, what is this longing really about? Is it about being famous amongst human beings or is it about being seen and known by God? Is it a desire that can only ultimately be fulfilled when we are living before God? enjoying his presence, basking in his glory, trusting what he declares about us over us, and not looking to fill that by someone or something else. Back in 2011, there were a group of researchers out of UCLA who, who began to analyze TV shows, and they, they began to try to identify what, what are the chief values being communicated through uh, TV shows, specifically those shows that are watched by preteens. And in 2011, after they surveyed kind of the landscape of shows for preteens, they discovered that the one value that they all shared in common and the one value that they all promoted was the value to be famous. And this was their assessment after kind of surveying this. They said, the rise of fame in preteen television may be one influence in the documented rise of narcissism in the culture. It's looking at a signpost, and it's becoming a tombstone because narcissism is not what anybody wants. But it says the rise of fame in preteen television may be one influence in the documented rise of narcissism in our culture. They said preteens are at, any, are at an age when they want to be popular just like the famous teenagers they see on TV and the Internet. And not long after this survey uh, came out, a, a woman by the name of Amy Schumer she kind of skyrocketed to fame fairly quickly, a, a comedian. 
And she had this to say about that whole experience and kind of what it did to her heart and to her life. She said, you know, I'm newly famous, and it turns out it's not really fun. She asked the crowd she was talking to, did you know that? You're, you're like, you know, that I'm, I'm just now learning that my dreams have been a sham and that it's actually not great, and it just only comes with pain. This longing to be seen and to be known, being traced to an end other than to be seen and to be known by the Lord. That becomes deadly. It is a sh- it, she's saying that the lesser glories of the created order, they provide you with phantom promises. These phantom promises that prove to be a sham in the end, they are painful in the end. They are tragic in the end. And so what we want to do is resist those signposts becoming tombstones in our lives by practicing repentance and returning to the one for whom we were created so that we say, God, I, I want to live before you. I want to be seen by you. I want to be known by you. And if you see me and you know me, it doesn't really matter who else sees me. And it doesn't really matter who else knows me. I was created for your glory, not theirs. I was created for your glory, not my own. And so we see this tragic fall from glory, and we're warned by it. And the warning gets even more intense. This isn't a pleasant story. When you pick up in verse 19 and you see this flight of glory that happens, the flight of glory where in the aftermath of this battle, we're told of a woman who happened to be Phineas's wife. She was traumatized into labor, and the labor proved intense, and she didn't survive it. Now, it's sad to know that soldiers die on the battlefield, but it's a whole other depth of sadness when a woman dies giving birth. And so this woman dies giving birth to a child, and notice what she says in verse 21. It says that she named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. She gives birth to a child, and she bestows a name upon him so that the rest of his life, every time his name is called, the people of Israel are reminded of this tragedy. They're reminded of the flight of glory. Now, if you are about to give birth, don't name your child Ichabod. Don't bestow that upon your baby. But here in this moment, this, the birth of this child would would confirm the reality that the glory of God has fled from Israel in this moment. But I'm really glad that the Bible doesn't end at the end of chapter 4. I'm really glad there's a lot more pages and a lot more story and a lot more content in this book. That the story of God's people and their relationship to God doesn't end here. We're going to know and we're going to find that This proved to be a temporary measure because many years later, another child would be born. Another child 
will be born into the world whose presence would confirm not that the glory of God has departed or that his fled, but that the glory of God has returned and that the glory of God has come in its fullness, that the glory of God has come to, to do what it's designed to do for, for his people. You get into John chapter 1, verse 14, and we're told about this child. He's described metaphorically in that verse as the word. And we're told that the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. The word tabernacled among us. The word came and did for us what the tabernacle and the ark and everything was designed to do for Israel. Then Jesus has come to do that fully for us now. That the word took on flesh and tabernacle, dwelt among us. And listen to what it goes on. We observe his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That when Jesus, the fullness of God's glory, came into the world, when his glory returned in Jesus, he never got it twisted. The wiring of Jesus' heart was never twisted so that he would live his life in complete obedience to his heavenly father, honoring and glorifying his father in every moment of every day so that when he went to the cross and he died there, his death would do something for us so that he would shed his blood so that we might be reconciled to God, our sins may be forgiven, so that the wiring of our hearts may be corrected. And Jesus would rise from the grave declaring this to be fully and finally done forever so that all who would trust in him all who want relationship with God can have it all who do not wish for their the purpose of their lives to short circuit but they want the purpose of their lives to be fulfilled that they would behold afresh and anew the glory of God in the person and the work of Jesus and so what do we do? We, we see God's glory in Jesus and we come to him and we find the glory for which we were created. The only glory that matters. The only glory that counts. The only glory that can establish your significance and your substance in the world that is, the only glory that can carry your significance and your substance into eternity. So we come to Jesus, the fullness of the glory of God, and we worship him, we trust him, we serve him. We recognize that we no longer have to fight for glory. We don't have to jockey for position amongst ourselves. We don't have to fight to be seen and known by everyone around us. No, we recognize that Jesus has already fought for our glory. He's already fought to bring us back into the glory for which we were created. And you know what kind of life that results in? That results in a life that is free. When you're not having to fight anymore, you were free to be. You were free to be a son of God. You were free to be a daughter of God. You were free to be a child of our heavenly father. And whatever desire you have in your heart, you bring that desire to the glory of God in Jesus to satisfy. You want to be known? 
you can be known by God. You want to be seen, you can be seen by God. You want to be, you want to experience intimacy, you can have intimacy with God. Every desire of your heart that is an echo, a signpost, should lead you to the glory for which you were created. The glory that is only found in the person and the work of Christ. C.S. Lewis put it this way, and I'll close. If I find in myself a desire, I would say a signpost. If I find in myself a desire or a signpost to which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The most probable explanation is that I am to look through this sign and not to this sign. That I am to trace it back to the God who created me and the God who rescues and redeems me in the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you, would you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? God, we confess that Far too often our wiring shifts and we aren't living for your glory. We're not seeking after your glory. We're not resting in your glory. I pray, Father, that when that is the case, that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, and that you would rewire us over and over and over again. God, that you would rewire our hearts so that we might behold anew your glory, that we would not look at the signposts of creation, but we would look through the signposts of creation and behold your glory. Father, may your glory be our satisfaction. May your glory be our goal. God, may your glory be the purpose for our existence. God, may your glory free us from the fight of glory. That we would not fight for the inferior, lesser glories of this world, but that we would find freedom in your glory and in your glory alone. We ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.